Hello, and welcome to Alert, radio for people who want to change the world. My name is Ashley Titterton. And I'm Michael Welch. On today's program, we're going to be hearing from Max Scott, an immigration lawyer, who will talk to us about the Conservatives' immigration policy. We'll also be hearing from Mordecai Breenberg about the Canadian Parliamentary Coalition to Combat Anti-Semitism and its recent conference here in Canada. And we will also hear from John Warnack about the potash takeover or the attempt to take over the potash corporation by an Australian firm. But first, here are the alert headlines for the week of November 11th, 2010. Canada will keep as many as 1,000 troops in Kabul as part of a plan to extend the country's mission in Afghanistan and convert it into a non-combat role after 2011, CBC News has learned. Up to 750 trainers and at least 200 support staff would work outside the combat zone at a training academy or large training facility for Afghan soldiers and police officers. They would remain in Afghanistan until 2014 at the latest. On Sunday, Defence Minister Peter McKay said the government was contemplating transitioning to a non-combat training role from a combat role, but did not offer exact numbers. Canada's combat mission, which involves up to 3,000 troops, is due to expire in July 2011 in accordance with a motion passed in Parliament. But allies, including the United States, have pressured Canada to remain. Stephen Harper says Canada will stand against anti-Israel rhetoric at international organizations like the United Nations as long as he is Prime Minister, quote, whatever the cost. Harper spoke at the start of an annual conference on combating anti-Semitism in Ottawa. The Ottawa conference, organized by the Canadian Parliamentary Coalition for Combating Anti-Semitism, later heard from Liberal leader Michael Ignatieff, who said the Vicious modern anti-Semitism is a, quote, threat to all humanity. A group called Independent Jewish Voices held a press conference after the Prime Minister's address Monday to reveal what it says are, quote, startling details of how the conference has an agenda to attack free speech and to silence legitimate criticism of Israel by falsely conflating this with anti-Semitism. The victims of a recent home invasion in Calgary are well-known anti-racism activists. Calgary police said five masked men armed with bats and hammers forced their way into the couple's home shortly after 1 a.m. Police believe the home was targeted for attack, although they haven't confirmed a motive. A neo-Nazi angle is being investigated, police said. One of the adults was Jason Devine, who, as a member of the anti-racist action Calgary, has, in the past, posted pictures of suspected white supremacists on his blog. More recently, he and his wife had put up posters in their neighborhood, outing people they claim are neo-Nazis. The Washington Post reports the U.S. has deployed armed predator drones to hunt for al-Qaeda operatives in Yemen for the first time in years. The drones are being operated by the Joint Special Operations Command and being flown from a nearby country, possibly Djibouti or Qatar. 
The drones are part of a major U.S. buildup in Yemen that includes the arrival of new CIA teams, up to 100 special operations force trainers, and the deployment of sophisticated surveillance and electronic eavesdropping systems. A Pentagon official told the Washington Post that plans are being made to nearly double military aid to Yemen next year to $250 million. In news from the Gulf of Mexico, federal scientists have found damage to deep-sea coral and other marine life on the ocean floor several miles from the blown-out BP well. Scientists say the find is a strong indication that damage from the spill could be significantly greater than officials had previously acknowledged. Coral is essential to the Gulf because it provides a habitat for fish and other organisms such as snails and crabs, making any large-scale death of coral a problem for many species. It might need years or even decades to grow back. Haiti's president, René Préval, is warning that flooding caused by Hurricane Tomas could increase the spread of a deadly cholera epidemic sweeping the nation. The outbreak has already killed 500 Haitians and sickened more than 7,000. Hurricane Tomas skirted Haiti on November 5th, flooding some coastal towns, forcing thousands from their homes and soaking camps for displaced people in the capital, Port-au-Prince, with rain. In Oakland, California, police arrested 152 people last Friday after hundreds took to the streets to protest what they viewed as the lenient sentencing of the police officer who shot dead Oscar Grant two years ago on a train platform. The officer, Johannes Messerl, was sentenced to two years in prison, the shortest sentence he could have received. In July, a jury in Los Angeles convicted Messerl of involuntary manslaughter, but acquitted him on the more serious charges of second-degree murder and voluntary manslaughter. About 40,000 years after Aboriginal people settled in Australia, a referendum is to be held on whether to amend the Constitution to recognize them as the country's original inhabitants. The move, announced by Prime Minister Julia Gillard, follows her predecessor Kevin Rudd's apology to Aboriginal children forcibly removed from their families. But some Aboriginal leaders were quick to condemn Miss Gillard's proposal as tokenism, while others said there were more pressing issues to be addressed, such as the glaring discrepancies in black and white health, living standards, and employment. Those are your alert headlines for this week. And now for Around the Left in Seven Days for the week of November 11th, 2010. In April 2010, in Cochabamba, Bolivia, the government of Bolivia convened a conference of social movements to confront the challenge of global warming. More than 30,000 participants outlined a blueprint to chart a path towards climate justice and to defend the rights of Mother Earth. The Toronto Bolivia Solidarity Group will be hosting a teach-in on the lessons from Bolivia on November 13th. The teach-in will outline the Cochabamba Declaration, discuss how we can implement the Cochabamba Agenda in Canada, and will strategize how environmental injustice in our communities can be resisted. Admission is $10 or pay what you can. The teach-in begins at 10 o'clock a.m. and will be held at Sydney Smith Hall in Toronto. Former British MP George Galloway will appear in 10 cities on a cross-Canada speaking tour from November 16th to 27th. 
Galloway will speak about the Canadian government's attempts to ban him from the country, as well as the political situation in the Middle East and Central Asia. The Free Palestine, Free Afghanistan, Free Speech Tour begins on the 17th in Montreal and includes stops in Halifax, Toronto, Hamilton, Vancouver, Calgary, Yellowknife, Edmonton, Winnipeg, and finally in Ottawa on the 27th. For more information, go to defendfreespeech.ca. November 20th, 2010 marks the 6th annual Winnipeg Transgender Day of Remembrance and the 12th annual International TDOR. This day serves as an opportunity to recognize, honor, embrace, celebrate, and remember the people who encounter or endure discrimination, prejudice, persecution, isolation, or violence because of their gender identity and or expression. Meet at the Circle of Life Thunderbird House in Winnipeg on November 20th at 5 o'clock p.m. to be a part of the service. On November 27th, at the Cecil Street Community Centre in Toronto, the Ontario Coalition Against Poverty will be holding a party to celebrate the struggles and victories of the past 20 years. OCAP has fought its way through two decades of offensive capitalism that have presented great challenges to our movements and to building and sustaining effective resistance. The party starts at 6.30. Admission is by donation. The 2010 Canadian Labour International Film Festival is happening in Toronto on the weekends of November 20th and 21st and the 27th and 28th. There are over 50 films this year that document the struggle of workers all over the world. For a list of films and locations, go to laborfilms.ca. Hanin Zawabi is the first Palestinian-Israeli woman elected to sit in the Israeli Knesset as a representative of an Arab party. Ms. Zawabi will be the keynote speaker for Canadians for Justice and Peace in the Middle East's annual fundraising tour. Ms. Zawabi will speak about the challenges she faces as a Palestinian leader in Israel proper, her experiences as an eyewitness during Israel's attack on the Gaza aid flotilla on May 31st, and about the elements essential to the resolution of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. The fundraising dinner will be held in Ottawa on November 18th, Toronto on the 19th, and in Montreal on the 20th. Go to cjpme.org for more details. For 30 years, the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives has been giving voice to progressive ideas. On November 18th, CCPA celebrates 30 years with a gala dinner and a conference entitled Advancing Democracy and Social Justice in Canada, the Next 30 Years. The conference and gala dinner hosted by inveterate Canadian actor Eric Peterson will be a who's who of progressive thinkers, activists, politicians, as well as CCPA staff, research associates, board from across Canada. The conference opens at 9 a.m. at the University of Ottawa, Tabaret Hall, Room 112, at 550 Cumberland Street in Ottawa. Go to www.policyalternatives.ca for more information. And that was Around the Left in Seven Days. We're speaking right now with Mordecai Breenberg. Mordecai Breenberg is an activist, broadcaster. He's the co-founder of the Canada-Palestine Support Network and is a member of the Seriously Free Speech Committee. Uh, he is uh, commenting today on uh, a recently concluded conference uh, ostensibly to combat the new anti-Semitism in, uh, in uh, 
in the world, and he's speaking to us from Vancouver. So welcome to Alert Mordecai. Thank you very much for inviting me. Okay, so uh, why don't you just tell us, first of all, about uh, what uh, the latest is uh, in terms of this uh, parliament, the uh, this parliamentary committee to combat anti-Semitism and what their uh, proposals of, that, that have come out of this recent uh, uh, conference. Yes, it's um, it, it was planned uh, uh, really way back uh, in uh, London. Uh, there was a conference there to uh, bring together parliamentarians from uh, different countries I think uh, it's important to clarify that when people arrive as members of parliament, they're not, in this instance, representing any discussion that's taken place in their country's parliament. They're not empowered by the parliament at all. And this uh, whole campaign is really a gathering of people no different from a lobby group, that is, people who are members of parliament who want to lobby on behalf of the Israeli government and defend the Israeli government against criticism. What they call the new anti-Semitism for them is criticism of Israel. So that's where the intersection of uh, the need for freedom of political expression uh, comes in a, into conflict or confrontation with the effort under the guise of alleged racism anti-Semitism uh, against Jews uh, to silence a political discussion. And uh, London put forward a protocol uh, which, uh, when they met, uh, in expanded the definition, uh, explicitly expanded the definition of anti-Semitism, and actually indicated that what they wanted to do was to get different uh, parliaments around the world to adopt this expanded definition and to thereby shut down criticism of Israel, which has been growing and growing. Uh, so the London gathering and the interparliamentary coalition of people from uh, different uh, parliaments, in, particularly in Western Europe, uh, was uh, to meet for a second time in Canada. And as a prelude to that, this meeting, which has just taken place, uh, the Canadian uh, members of Parliament who want to lobby on behalf of Israel decided that they would form a uh, Canadian parliamentary coalition to combat anti-Semitism. Again, they're simply parliamentarians who are specifically wanting to advocate for uh, for Israel in Canada, and who are these politics? Like, how many are there, and, and which parties do they come from? They, uh, I, I don't remember the exact number, but the parties that uh, they represent were initially all the parties: the mm -hmm. Conservatives, Liberal Party, members of the NDP, and initially also members of the Bloc Québécois. The Bloc Québécois members with through publicly criticizing this, uh, this uh, parliamentary grouping uh, as biased and one-sided, that they weren't prepared to hear uh, opinions on the issue from uh, groups which uh, 
had uh, different perceptions than simply uh, a, a commitment to advocate. Mordecai, could you expand? Israel. Sorry, could you expand on that? Because the fact that it's called a parliamentary uh, coalition with elected representatives, it, seem, it suggests that this is a very open and public process. And uh, if if it's only like, to what extent is there public input, and for that matter, public scrutiny in this whole uh, process? The question is very appropriate and apt, and uh, the short answer is uh, none. <laughs> uh, in terms, of this committee uh, calls itself a parliamentary committee, but as I explained, uh, it is not a product of a debate and discussion in Parliament which adopts, let's say, there's a problem with health care and they want to form an investigative commission or there's a problem with higher education and they want to form an investigative commission. There was no such thing. These are simply people who gathered together, mainly directed by two individuals, Erwin Kotler, former uh, cabinet minister in the Liberal Party government, and uh, Jason Kenney from a uh, cabinet minister in the Conservative government. Mm -hmm. So uh, they then advertised that they wanted, uh, they would accept submissions and uh, from the public, they said, and many groups submitted uh, comments. Those that were critical never were called to, to come to the hearings. So it was simply to gather together people who would reinforce the preconceptions, the predetermined bias of, uh, of these various members of parliament. And so the because of uh, of that closed-mindedness, that was the reason that uh, the members that had uh, volunteered to be part of this from the Bloc Québécois decided that they would withdraw, and their party issued a public criticism of the uh, of this uh, called Canadian Parliamentary Coalition. They call themselves a coalition. Uh, which is really more apt, or but I would call them a lobby group. They're individuals who have been self-selected. So well, there's recently been uh, they 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 finished their conference. Uh, so what uh, what is the uh, the impact? What's come out of their uh, get together in in Canada? Well, I think from their point of view, um, it was not a great success. Um, because they were attempting, uh, on the uh, basis of what they had done in London, to go further than London and to actually get governments, and I think Canada was targeted as the first one, to uh, put in some legislative format, let's say an expanded definition of hate, which would include this uh, criticism of Israel as being hate speech. When I looked at, and, and it's just uh, been sort of summarized in some of the mainstream media, what they have uh, decided upon is, A, that they're going to have uh, increased education programs about anti-Semitism. They're going to have enhanced record keeping. They've been constantly alleging that anti-Semitism is on the rise. It's as great as it was in the 1930s in Germany. And there's absolutely no uh, evidence that uh, substantiates that. So they're really backtracking by saying they don't have the records. They don't have the evidence for what they were earlier alleging. So they need to have enhanced record uh, keeping. 
their uh, want to target uh, speech on the internet, but again, there's no particular legislative uh, proposal that's come forward. And uh, the uh, Stephen Harper and uh, and Jason Kenney have said uh, that their government will have zero tolerance. Uh, for anti-Semitism, and the big example they give of that is that they withdrew from uh, Durban to the United Nations Conference uh, on uh, Worldwide Racism. Okay, uh, Mordecai, just quickly, I, I know that uh, there's been, uh, we were talking about this uh, this an- new anti-Semitism, so-called, as being a, a mask for, or this combat against the new anti-Semitism is essentially a front for uh, criticism of Israel. What has it done, the, this uh, group done to actually, uh, what has the impact been in terms of eliminating dissent from within Israel? Uh, <laughs> they anything. avoid totally what is happening in Israel because uh, the more you examine the constriction of uh, freedom of expression in Israel, for Jewish Israelis, and we're to leave Palestinians aside, they're, they're totally subjected to, uh, to dual standards in that country. But the suppression of dissent within Israel from uh, Jewish Israelis, academics, cultural figures, uh, political figures, uh, uh, citizen community groups, etc., has been quite, um, what would you say, uh, quite a rapid form of, uh, of suppression of criticism. And uh, this grouping doesn't want to draw attention to that fact. They want people to somehow see Israel as a flourishing democratic society. So they neither want to have UN reports about uh, violations of international law, nor of organizations like Amnesty's documentation of that, nor do they wish to see or, or have people in this country be familiar with uh, the actual practices of uh, the so-called democracy for 80% of the population, the Jewish uh, uh, population, uh, because that too is being rapidly eroded. Okay, well on that note, uh, Mordecai, uh, we're going to leave it there, but we're going to continue to monitor this, uh, these developments. So thank you very much for joining us on Alert. Thanks, and uh, I appreciate the fact that you'll keep your eyes open on it. I think it is uh, an ongoing uh, issue to be monitored. Thanks again. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. McDonald Scott is an immigration consultant and a member of the Immigration Legal Committee, which advocates for the rights of immigrants and refugees. He's here to speak with Alert today about the changes to Canadian immigration policy proposed in the Preventing Human Smugglers from Abusing Canada's Immigration System Act. Hi, Mac. How's it going? Good. How are you guys? We're good. Thanks for speaking with us today. No worries. Uh, can you explain a bit about this proposed legislation? Uh, why do you think it's such a such a backward step for Canadian immigration policy? Well, you know, you know, you gotta love the Tories. They call a bill preventing human smuggling, when really what that bill is about is basically cracking down, like they have throughout their their time in office, on people fleeing persecution and people fleeing poverty. This bill is going to make it possible that when people come two or more, in a situation where, and you know, it's not even clear who decides this, but 
where they, they, they use unconventional means to get here, which means basically, like, say you or I tomorrow gets, like, persecuted by the government to the point where we hire someone to get out, out of the country. Like, we just hire someone to flee, to get ourselves, our families to, to safety. Well, those people are now human smuggled. And if there's two or more of them, two or more of them, then the government can care, declare it a human smuggling incident, and they can hold those people for up to a year without any review by the Immigration Refugee Board, by a court, by anybody of the detention. So basically, you're, you're, you're for all intents and purposes, disappearing people for a year. If those people win a refugee claim, which means if someone decides that they're you know, in danger of being persecuted or, or hurt when they go back home, they still have to wait five years before they can apply for permanent residency. Right now, you can apply immediately after winning a refugee claim. They also can't bring their family for five years. And they can't return home. They, well, they can't leave the country for five years. So what we're talking about is a situation where people are victims of human smuggling. We are going to make them the people that we prosecute to try and stop human smuggling. Now, I only went to community college. I'm not a lawyer. But it's hard for me to understand how you stop a crime or a, a situation of, of someone exploiting someone by attacking the person who's exploited or who's the victim of that crime. And that's exactly what this bill does. Okay, so how does the Harper government's policy compare to earlier government's policies dealing with refugees? Now, Canada's always had some issues around dealing with refugees, to be clear. Our history includes such notable incidents as, as uh, detaining, uh, keeping you know, 200 uh, people on a boat out in Vancouver while they starved to death and got TB back at the beginning of the last century, uh, turning back boatloads of Jews during the Second World War to be put in concentration camps. But there's been better governments and worse governments. We've never been much on protecting people who are per- persecuted. We've never been much on, on allowing in poor people, particularly where they're, they're not white. But there's been better governments and worse governments. The liberals and the governments before them, who are also liberals mostly, went out of their way to try and stop people from getting to Canadian soil, because in a fit of guilt, we signed the UN Convention on Refugees during the, the 60s and 50s, which said that if someone got to Canadian soil, we had to give them a fair shot at like proving whether they're being persecuted or not. The Liberals' method was to go overseas and, you know, basically find airplanes, airplane companies that would, would allow people on who then made it to Canadian soil to, to make a refugee claim, to shut down the number of countries that we would allow to Canada without a visa. But this is a whole new step. Now, I've, I've never been through the situation, for example, that a Tamil person goes through in, in Sri Lanka. But I understand there's concentration camps right there, right now there for Tamils, that they've been killing Tamils and putting them in mass graves. And it kind of adds up that Tamil people would then pile into boats and float around the world. Because like, a lot of this new bill is based on the last two big boatloads of Tamil people that came to Canada, right? But let's be clear, you don't get in a boat, float around for, for weeks on end, go to Australia and get turned away, sit out in the ocean for long enough that TB becomes rank on your boat, that you're, you're not eating, that you're endangering your own life, unless you're fleeing serious persecution. And our government is using that as a chance to say, well, we don't want these people on our soil, so what we're going to do is the next time they come, 
We're going to take these people who are fleeing torture. We're going to take these people who are fleeing detention. We're going to take these people who are fleeing persecution. We're going to give them the same treatment here in Canada. And that is a step up beyond what the Liberal government even did. Do you think that uh, today's harsh policies speak to real changes with human smuggling or the refugee situation? Or do you think that it speaks to a meaner attitude by this particular government? I think, I mean, to be clear, people will take, I would take the means if my family was being attacked to come to a country where I thought I could be safe, even if it meant hiring someone, a so-called people smuggler, especially where I was trying to flee to a country that had done everything historically it could to keep me from getting there in the first place, which is what Canada's done. It's a meaner attitude. It's also a stupid attitude, to be clear. And it's a racist attitude. They are particularly cutting down immigration by poor and working people on a variety of fronts. And what the Harper government has clearly been trying to build towards is a two-class system of immigration. If you're poor and working... Well, we're not going to protect you, but if you get a job where we need people, we'll let you work basically in indentured servitude for that employer for four years before you have to leave and you can't come back for six years. And that's the way they're going to let poor and working people come, especially poor and working people from the global south. In the meantime, they've opened up you know, new programs for middle-class people, for rich people. They've made it possible that if you can pay our outrageous foreign student fees, you can come here, go to school for two years, work a year, and then become a permanent resident. It's a new system of immigration. It's a clearly class system. It's a clearly raced system. And they've, what they've done is taken the history of Canadian immigration, which has always been class, raced, homophobic, ableist, anti-women, and they're just making it more explicit and making it even harsher than it used to be. And that's stupid. Okay. My grandparents came as working people. Probably your grandparents or your parents did too. This country has been built by poor and working people coming. Just because they're not white doesn't mean we have to build a system that doesn't allow them to come and help build, build this country. We've got time for one more quick question. Sure. Uh, these policy shifts appear to show that Canada is following the same trend as in Europe and in particular Australia as well. Uh, yeah. What's your comment on that? I think the global north is trying to, protect, is trying to exclude the global south. We take their money, we take their wealth every day. We want to keep them out of our country as well or only allow them in where we can clearly exploit them and use them as indentured labor, as basically economic slavery. And I think, though, they're also scared because people are fighting back. And I encourage people to check out nooneisillegal.org, to check out other immigrant rights groups around the country, around the globe, because, you know, they aren't the only ones making policy. People are organizing, people are fighting, and we will change this system. We will tear these walls down one brick at a time. Well, we'll leave it there for today. Thanks for speaking with us, Mac. No problem, Ashley. <laughs> We've been speaking with McDonald Scott, an immigration consultant with the Immigration Legal Committee. And now we're speaking with John Warnock. John is an author and political economist, and he's going to, based in Saskatchewan, and he's going to speak to us today about the uh, recent bid by BHP Billiton in Australia to try to take over the Potash Corporation in Saskatchewan and about the uh, recent decision by the federal government to uh, block that takeover. So, John, welcome to uh, Alert. Um, could you maybe tell us, first of all, the uh, 
what what the rationale would be for the uh, the federal government in this case to uh, decide to block this uh, takeover, uh, especially given that the the conservative uh, government and in fact both wings of uh, power in this country, the liberals and the conservatives, are uh, rather hesitant to reject these sorts of takeover bids. You know, getting in the way of the uh, liberalized uh, market and such. Yes, well. It appears to be partly a political decision because it certainly is contrary to what the federal conservatives have done in recent years where they've proved all the major takeovers. And, uh, of course, the consensus here is that uh, um, there was a political threat posed not just by Saskatchewan but by some other provinces here. And... uh, the possibility of losing some conservative seats in the next federal election. But I don't think that was a real threat because I think the people who support uh, Harper and the conservative government here in Saskatchewan would support them anyhow, no matter what position they took on the Potash Corporation. What, uh, just as far as the people are concerned, I mean, how much support is there for this, uh, the, the Potash <clears throat> Corporation in, in Saskatchewan? Well, uh, a curious thing is that uh, most people don't know much about the Potash Corporation or resources in general. Um, I would think a majority, of, of a large majority, thought it was a Canadian-owned and controlled company. In fact, many of them thought it was owned in Saskatchewan. Uh, a recent poll <laughs> uh, indicated that uh, one-third of the people in Saskatchewan thought it was still a Crown Corporation. So they weren't uh, aware of the fact at all that the corporation has changed rather significantly over the last 15 years, where it's bought major phosphate industry in the United States and major uh, nitrogen industry in the United States. And so potash now only accounts for about one-third of the sales of the company. That was generally unknown by anybody. And, they, of course, everyone here takes the position that the potash company is a Saskatchewan company controlled in uh, out of Saskatoon. And so I think it was sort of a surprise to most of them to see the Conference Board on Canada report saying that it was majority foreign-owned and that the real management of the company is based in Chicago and that the company is basically 87% owned by pension funds and large uh, investment funds, etc. So it's really not at all a Saskatchewan-controlled company. Well, okay, so if there wasn't a, a major price to pay, then then why did the Harper government, do you think, uh, intervene uh, in this way to apparently block this uh, takeover bid? Well, I, I don't know for sure, but I think some contributing factors were the position of so many Canadian businessmen were opposed to the takeover, and a lot of important pension and and, and uh, investment funds, mutual fund corporations, oppose the takeover because it'd be a loss of a major investment source for them. Um, and I think the fact that other provinces and other provincial premiers came out and said it was time to stand up, um, I think those are all contributing factors. But I don't know exactly what the the real the final word was on that or why they did it. No one seems to know. They're sort of surprised. 
Yeah, well, it it does seem that uh, that you mentioned the provincial premiers. Uh, Brad Wall is the premier of Saskatchewan. He is uh, the Saskatchewan party leader, which is a kind of a, a conservative party. Uh, what was his angle as far as uh, blocking this deal is concerned, and well, what the impact that he had? The major the major concern of the provincial government is that uh, um, <laughs> BHP Billiton actually said that they were going to practice capitalism when they took over the company. They were going to pull out of the cartel arrangement, which they had through Compotex, and instead use their position as the market leader and the dominant firm by far in the field pursue uh, a policy of expanding and cutting prices, you know, to take a greater share of the market and maybe drive out some of the weak uh, people that are hiding under the cartel. You know, the old uh, capitalist competition and drive your, your competitors out, you know. And the premier and his associates looked at that if there was a drop in the price of potash because of this strategy under the current royalty system, the government could lose two or three billion dollars over the next ten years or so um, in royalties. Mm. And now that wouldn't have happened, as many uh, advisors pointed out and analysts pointed out, if they just changed the royalty system away from a price of a percentage of profits towards a production share, they could get the same money back. But the fact is that the provincial government has a does not want to touch the royalty systems at all. They don't want to open that door. They don't want to have any debate about royalties in this province because the, the royalties in this province, generally in resources, are the lowest in the world, mm. way lower than they are in Alberta. Now, uh, there is. Uh, tell us about the company Canpotex. Uh, what is their function exactly, and, and where did they fit into this whole scheme? Well, Canpotex grew out of... Um, well, there was enormous overinvestment in the industry because of all the handouts that were given by the federal provincial government. So there was enormous overcapacity in the in the construction of the first ten mines in Saskatchewan. And so the Premier Thatcher's government in the in the nineteen sixty seven created a cartel, which uh, between an alliance between the Saskatchewan producers and the New Mexico producers which fixed the price high and shared the production. Now, that formal uh, agreement went out of business when the, the New Mexico mines basically used up all their supply and quit. But it was transformed into Campotex, which is a marketing agency for Potash Corporation for, of Saskatchewan, plus the two private other private firms, Mosaic and Agrium. And so they're, they're, they have two functions. They sell all the potash in the international market, and they're also in charge of the whole infrastructure infrastructure for shipping. They're building ports. They've, they've bought uh, a whole lot of uh, rail cars and stuff like that. So they, they also provide that infrastructure support. And, it, and there was a fear that if they pulled out of Campotex, Campotex would collapse. And that would leave the other two mines high and dry, Mosaic and Agrium. They wouldn't. They would have to start selling their own potash. Hmm. Well, as far as uh, potash itself, what is its significance to the? Uh, it's been referred to as a strategic resource. What is its significance to uh, Saskatchewan? Well, uh, it's a strategic cor- uh, resource in a sense uh, for agriculture production. It's one of those. It's one of the three major uh, uh, fertilizers used, but it, uh, when you do have a, a shortage of potash in the soil, 
you can pour on all kinds of other fertilizers, et cetera, but they don't have any effect. It's Liebig's theory of the minimum. You've got to have so much potash in the soil or else all the other things don't work. So it's a crucial uh, element in any kind of um, adding fertilizers to increase production, which is everybody agrees is going to happen more around the world. And so in that sense, it's important. I don't know if you call it strategic. Uh, I mean, I don't think it's any more strategic than the oil industry, for example, or maybe the uranium industry. But that's how they describe it as a strategic industry to supposedly justify the t- uh, blocking the takeover. Yeah. Now, just uh, as we wrap up here, could you maybe explain, like, what would be the impact of this takeover on the Saskatchewan economy itself uh, should it succeed? I mean, should uh, there is a 30-day time frame right. in which, uh, if it were to go forward, if there were some change of heart or what have you, uh, the uh, there would be uh, what kind of an impact on the, the foreseeable future on the, S- the Saskatchewan economy? Well, they may, the Billington didn't play their cards very well on this, but uh, a lot of observers here thought if they had made a bigger offer to offset the royalties to the government, they would have accepted it and they wouldn't have taken the hardline position they did. Uh, they could change and go back and do that again. Um, as far as the mines are here, no one's going to take the mines away, and they're all going to be, they're the most efficient uh, mines in the world, the most profitable mines by far. I mean, the potash mine in, in Saskatchewan provides 60%, <laughs> have a, a, a gross profit <laughs> last year, a 60% return on investment. That's not bad. Um so the the employees here will probably stay the same or would stay the same no matter who is who owns it because the mines are you can't just pick up the mines and move them to China. Uh, so I don't think it would have a whole lot of uh, impact, particularly if they tweaked the royalty system uh, in a different way. I mean, they have had in the past uh, production quotas on uh, for royalties, and there's no reason why they couldn't do that again. So I don't think it makes a big difference who owns it. Um, one of the concerns that was expressed, though, uh, was that with the, the present potash or, or a corporation with a by diversified ownership, the management is really in control, and they thought if Billington took over, um, the company itself in Australia would have really strong uh, influence over all policy, and no one else would have any any say in anything. So that was a another concern. But as you point out, I mean, this isn't a done deal yet. I mean, they could <laughs> they could sweeten the, the offer a bit, and who knows? It might be approved. Okay. Well, I, on that note, uh, John Warnock, I want to thank you very much for, for sharing your thoughts about this uh, takeover bid and the uh, events around it. And I want to thank you. We'll look forward. We'll see how this uh, whole scheme uh, progresses in the over the next 30 days or so okay <laughs> thanks a lot you're welcome goodbye bye this is music is the weapon i'm mitch Podolik, and this week with remembrance day just around the corner i thought i might bring you some songs from world war ii and about world war ii i know Every time uh, Remembrance Day comes around, everybody puts on the old red poppy and in Flanders fields, and people feel bad about what happened to our guys, and they should feel bad about what happens to anybody who gets killed in the war. 
I always look at it a little bit different. I, I'm a socialist, and I always look at it like, here are a bunch of workers from one country killing a bunch of workers from another country so that the guys who make the guns and the guys who sell the oil can make a couple of bucks. And there's no reason for that at all. So today, this is our Remembrance Day show. And to start, here's Leonard Cohn with The Partisan. When they poured across the border, I was cautioned to surrender. This I could not do. I took my gun and vanished. I have changed my name so often I've lost my wife and children But I've many friends And some of them are with me An old woman gave us shelter Kept us hidden in the garret Then the soldiers came She died Without a whisper There were three of us this morning I'm the only one this evening But I must go on The frontiers are my prison Oh, the wind, the wind is blowing Through the graves the wind is blowing Freedom soon will come Then we'll come from shadow Les amants étaient chez moi Ils me disent, signe-toi Mais je n'ai pas Prized piano when the sun had gone to rest. 
I used to hear the notes drift down along the silent water as Curie played the notes and scales for her dear sons and daughters. Now me, I played piano, but not as good as Curie. She went in for that long-haired stuff, but my, she played it pretty. The old piano had a tone that set my heart to aching. It always sounded sweetest though when it was Curie playing. In December, when the Seventh Fleet was turned to smoke and ashes. Order came to confiscate their fishing boats and caches. And Kiri's husband forced to go and work in labor camps. And Kiri left alone to fend and hold the fort as best she can. But the music did not drift as often from up the cove at Kiri's house. When it did, it sounded haunted. Played with worry, played with doubt. For Kiri knew that soon she too would be compelled to leave, and the old upright would stay behind, and Kiri she would grieve. I loaded Kiri on the bus with stoic internees. The crime that they were guilty of was that they were not like me. And if I was ashamed, I didn't know it at the time. They were flotsam on the wave of war. They were no friends of mine. I went up to Kiri's house to tag all their belongings and set them out for auctioneers who'd claim them in the morning. One piece that I thought I'd keep and hold back for myself was that haunting ivory upright that Kiri played so well. Had not left it there for me to take as plunder. She rolled it down onto the dock and on to the harbor. The old upright in strangers' hands was a thought she couldn't bear. So she consigned it to the sea to settle the affair. So many years have come and gone since Kiri's relocation. I look back now upon that time with shame and resignation. For Kiri knew what I did not—that if we must be free, 
Then sometimes we must sacrifice to gain our dignity. Yes, Kiri knew what I did not, that if we must be free, then sometimes we must sacrifice to gain our dignity. That was James Keelahan with Kiri's Piano, an amazing story, and before that, Leonard Cohen with The Partisan. One of the best folk writers in the world is a man named Eric Darling. People know him for his song, the band played Walsing Matilda, and people know uh, No Man's Land, and he's a great anti-war writer, and he took on uh, the question of the Holocaust, and he came up with this brilliant piece of writing. Here is... Eric Darling with Never Again. I have been to hell today I saw the devil's naked face I felt the poison freeze my heart In that evil, evil place I heard the ghosts cry out their warning Their voices ringing through the years I stood beneath the barbed wire fence And wept and wept bitter tears Never, never again I stood alone that winter's day On that barren killing ground Inside my head the voices grew Till my brain was bursting with the sound They cried, come rain, do not forget us and I replied, I never will And as my soul in anguish wept One by one the voices stilled Never, never again Europe, sixty years ago, remember Depression, millions on the dole, remember In those dark, despairing times Of unemployment and red lines A cancer grew fat and malign Remember Its banner was a crooked cross Remember Its destiny a holocaust Remember its creed was racial purity It fed on fear and bigotry Its touch was death and slavery Remember It's happening again It's happening again Can't you see it's happening again It's happening again It's happening again can't you see it's happening again? Bells announced for Chandachau, remember David Star of People's Shroud, remember No refuge and no hiding place For non-members of the master race Whole nations enslaved and debased, remember Blood and toil and sweat and tears, remember 
The nightmare lasted six long years, remember The world drowned in the bloody tide Of war and death and genocide Fifty-seven million died, remember It's happening again It's happening again Can't you see it's happening again It's happening again It's happening again Can't you see 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 it's happening again I've lived in freedom all my life Never thinking much about the cost Of those who suffered and who died So that freedom's flame would not be lost I saw the flame in Sachsenhausen In spite of all its burning yet To all the ghosts who guard the flame I promise you I won't forget Never, never That was Eric Bogle with Never Again Remember. An amazing song. That's it for this week. See you next week, folks. Keep on picking. Well, that's our show for this week. Thanks for being with us. We'll be here next week at this time. If you would like to send us a comment, write to alert at canadiandimension.com. To hear this show again... Or to hear any of our past shows, go to the Canadian Dimension website at canadiandimension.com and select Alert. The show is also podcast on rabble.ca. The executive producer of Alert is Canadian Dimension publisher Saigonic. Technical producer is Tommy Allen, assisted by Selena Serbinuk. Alert headlines by Chris Webb. Around the Left in Seven Days, prepared by Ben Wood. Music is the Weapon by Mitch Padala. I'm Ashley Titterton. And I'm Michael Welch. Alert Radio is a production of Canadian Dimension magazine.